Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast, where we discuss tea as self-cultivation. All the life lessons, zen, awakening, and insights that come through a life of Cha Dao. This will be the focus of this podcast, developing and cultivating ourselves and our spiritual practice through tea. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, how it's produced or made, you might want to check out our magazine, Global Tea Hut, which also includes those topics. If you're interested in the practical aspects of brewing tea, we have a whole series of videos on YouTube called Brewing Tea. Also, you're welcome to come to our center, Tea Sage Hut, here in Miali, Taiwan, and sit a 10-day course where we incorporate all these aspects from the linear to the brewing tea to the spiritual cultivation all together, and you can take a deep dive and immerse yourself and ground yourself in this beautiful practice. We're so excited to have this forum to discuss all the life lessons that we can cultivate together through tea. Welcome, put on a kettle, get out some bowls, and let's drink some tea together. Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast. I'm Morgan. I'm Janos. And we are glad to have Buddha and uh, Neil Berry back on the podcast, continuing our discussion about Zen and science. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Last time, the two of you talked about the similarities between Zen and science and how they are both methods of pursuing truth as it is. Uh, we defined Zen not as a religion or some kind of ism, but as a meditative mind. In your opinion, Neil, is this meditative mind in concordance with the scientific worldview, or is there something that is at odds with it? Well, last last time when I was discussing, when we were discussing, I should say, the, the similarities between um, Zen and uh, science, um, in science, you... you you're trying to, as I was saying, then you're trying to get to an objective truth. So you're you're trying to take out the the human element or the subjective element of our interpretation and our view of reality, and you're trying to get to a fundamental truth. That if I was to walk up to you, Wuda, and say this is true, independent of your viewpoint of um, or your background or your understanding, you'd be able to look at that and be like, okay, that's a truth that we can agree on. Um, now, in the same in the same way with Zen, you well, in terms of getting to this meditative mind, you're, you it's trying to come to a fundamental truth, but from a personal perspective, in a sense, you, you you're trying to clear the dust off the mirror or or something like that, and attempting to come to a point where you get to an objective truth, and the teacher's position, I would if I'm not putting, I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, so to speak, but the teacher's position is sort of showing you that path to that. And it's like, that's something that you can both share. It's some fundamental truth of the universe. And so they're going on a similar path. They're both trying to rid themselves of bias, innate bias or um, skewing of data or skewing of how you view reality, as we discussed quite a bit in the first part. So there's a lot in common there. And there's, a, there's, a, it, there's not much friction in, in that sense. So it, say, for example, when I'm doing science or something uh, or researching, um, say, I, say I go to the whiteboard and, I, I, and I'm doing some maths on the whiteboard. I'm going into that space where I'm, it's just me and the whiteboard, me thinking. I'm trying to put my thoughts on that whiteboard. I'm, I'm doing the mathematics. I'm going through. I'm in a singular state of mind. Right. That process of getting into that state is very similar to when I'm trying to get into a meditative state or if I'm having silent tea or something, I'm focusing on a singular task mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get to that, uh, just a fundamental, like that fundamental space of concentration. So assuming that's what I'm answering the question here, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's how I see it. There's a, there's a, there's a bit, there's an overlap there. And if, I, if, I, if I'm trying to express my ideas to someone as well, I, I've got to think in a way that I'm not trying to coerce them with my like in how my science is being done or something. I'm not, I'm not in, in that sense. Like it, it's more I'm trying to show my truth to them that I've found. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, 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 I see the similarities in that case. Yeah. 
Um, do you ever feel like being a scientist gets in the way of your spiritual practice? Um, yeah, yes and no. Okay, so so if, if I was to say look at most religions and things, um, a lot of them have significant amount of baggage in the form of dogma or things that you're told that you need to accept um, on minimal evidence. Um, now, although that obviously immediately rubs me the wrong way when I, from a scientific perspective, I immediately get warning signals. I'm like, Ooh, no, you don't know that. You can't say that. But at the same time, I know that when like a lot of the reasons, like most religions have those things and they have, but there's reasons for them. It's about creating rituals and uh, processes that you repeat, thought processes that you repeat. And it's meant to create a mental state in your head over time that when you then come across something else which is separate from that, you act in a way in accordance with those processes and those things that you've built up over time. So although I rub against the wrong way in the actual sort of theological side like in terms of like the like some like the actual literal taking of myths and, and literal taking of religious figures i don't i wouldn't shy away from the lessons that could be learned from those things or the way in which they could improve my my state now in saying that it's it, i find it's being able to pro, get into a mental state like that is helpful for my physics helpful mm. for my science so a personal example would be, say I, well, every day I have a science tea session in the morning before I go into work. The whole idea is I'm, I'm, it's, it's a ritualistic um, thing that's meant to remind me to be always making tea. In that sense, I always being, when I'm talking, discussing with someone, if I'm working on the whiteboard or I'm reading an article, I'm focused. I'm in that, that state of mind. And so in that sense, Zen and the practice of it is conducive to good science work, I would say. And if anything, it's, it's helped me in, in my life. Mm. and my, Well, not just my life, but my physics. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, mainly the only issues that would arise is if there's some requirement of some mythological belief or not mythological is the wrong term but sort of like a, a religious dogmatic thing which is mostly outside of zen but then at the same time if someone was to present that to me i would look beyond the actual literal taking of that and try to see the truth i think you're also like touching on a really important um and fundamental distinction between eastern and western philosophy in general and um, more specifically zen and uh, Western philosophy in general. And within Western philosophy, I, I include the scientific method, which is obviously has its kind of births in, in Aristotelian philosophy. Yeah, and, course, and, yeah. and the beginnings of Western philosophy are the beginnings of the scientific method. So they're not separate. But <clears throat> in the West, um, a philosophy is kind of regarded as a stance on the nature of reality. So an argument on how reality functions or what it is, etc., and the role of the uh, of the you know of the readers or other philosophers that are going to engage with that philosophy is to just like in science is to be skeptical and pick at it and and find if its foundation has any weaknesses and then and then through that process create a new philosophy that's a, a, maybe a more strengthened more buttressed version of the other one etc cetera, etc cetera. And, mm -hmm. and in that we we progress thought in the west so there's a you know even when when a um, journalist for example writes a article about a new book that's come out by Joe Schmo and then you, you, you'll see within uh, her article several times, she'll say, well, in his new book, Joe Schmo argues that. Yeah. <clears throat> and so his, uh, whatever philosophy he presents in the book is considered an argument on the nature of reality, a stance, a philosophical stance. But in the East, and especially with Buddhism, uh, teachings are more often uh, regarded as invitations to explore, mm. which is a whole other outlook. So, you know, some of the words that the Buddha said more than any others were ehi pasiko, which means come and see. So in other words, come and see what happens when you look at the world like this. 
So as opposed to this is the way things are, you know, it's the difference between a statement and a question. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. the Buddha is offering you questions, avenues of exploration, uh, doorways that you could open. And, you know, like one of the one of the like spiritual truths that I often hand off at, at workshops when I teach around the world is um, that I like to hand off is, is basically the, the question. And I leave participants with this question. I tell them to go and actually honestly reflect upon it. And the question is, is it possible? Notice the language. I'm not saying is it. I'm saying, is it possible that the rivers and lakes and mountains have feelings and want to be included in decisions that affect them? I didn't say, is it? I said, is it possible that the rivers and lakes and mountains have feelings and want to be included in decisions that affect them? And my next response is for the more rational, uh, you know, maybe more, you could say, science-minded of, of, of my audience, because I'll say, I want you to honestly go reflect on that. Now, again, I'm not taking a stance on reality. I didn't say, is it? I said, is it possible? And in the same way, you're not asking that person. Right. I'm just saying, is yeah. it possible? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And what I usually say is, if you go home and you reflect and your answer is no, then I would invite you to explore that wall. Why not? Why is that an impossibility? And, and, and you know, why not? What, what is, what's in the way? And da, da, da. So you see, even that little teaching where I'm, you know, uh, I, I obviously think it is possible, um, but I'm not trying to teach it in a way where it's like, you know, the rivers and mountains and lakes have feelings <laughs> and they want to be included in decisions that affect them. Instead, I'm approaching it as, is it possible? And if you don't feel that it is possible, why not? And so, again, these teachings are invitations to explore as opposed to philosophical stances. And growing up in, a, in, a, in the West and being educated scientifically, this was very much, this, the difference between those two was, was very much a, a barrier for me when, because I've been in Asia now 25, 27 years and learning Buddhism and learning from uh, teachers here in the East, that was a barrier that I'd overcome in myself. Because a teacher would be set, uh, giving a teaching and I would be sitting there like criticizing it and being like, ah, I disagree with this and this and I agree with that and I agree. And then I would come up to them afterwards and be like, you said bro, the, that third point that you made actually was yeah, not, yeah. But if you read the data of, blah, 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 <laughs> you go, and they would just look at you like you're nuts because they weren't offering a stance and you've gotten into a competitive stance with somebody that's not in a competitive stance and all they were trying to was do was offer you um uh, maybe important uh, opportunities to inquire, mm -hmm. and so that's that's a I think an important point where um, you know some of the what we was just discussed is becomes well, relevant. Well, yeah, a lot of, a lot of what I said was obviously coming from that Western perspective of yeah, that's exactly what you just said. Yeah, yeah, which I fully understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, that was a that was something inside of me. Yeah, that yeah. took a long time to for me to realize that I don't have to. Um, Especially when in being, in being engaged as a student, um, I, I don't have to have like I don't have to have, be constantly on my guard. Mm. Uh, I can trust yeah. in because really, ultimately, when you really analyze it, uh, if you're always on guard around uh, teachers, if you really analyze that, it's not a it's not really a. a fear of the teachers it's not really a lack of confidence in teachers it's a lack of confidence in yourself because in essence what you're kind of saying is i'm worried they would convince me of something that's not true and so you're saying you're you're ultimately admitting that you're susceptible to nonsense yes right whereas i fully trust in myself i trust in my rat my ration my, my my rational self my rationality i trust in my spirit i trust in my heart so I can go to a teacher and be just fully open and absorbative and take it all in and, you know, and then, and then, you know, perhaps later on when I get home, I can, I can separate can the wheat from the chaff and, yeah. and I can figure out which parts are for me and which parts aren't. The Buddha said, you know, very often, uh, one very famous uh, teaching that he gives is called the Kalama Sutta. Kalama was a place. I don't know if you have, are you familiar with the Kalama Sutta? I think you'll appreciate it a lot, yeah. and we can just uh, present it, and then I want to move on to more questions. But yeah. uh, basically, Aklama was a town that was a crossroads, and so they had just a constant stream of, of visitors and tourists, basically, and people traveling. And this is ancient India, so uh, amongst those traveling through Kalama, yeah, amongst those traveling through Kalama were, were, yeah. were uh, also a bunch of spiritual people. And in essence, 
when they, you know, they, the people of Columbia got fed up because of so many teachers contradicting each other, saying, no, that guy was wrong. We're, I'm right. No, 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 I'm, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. That when they saw the Buddha coming, they were just like, oh, God, here we go. Another one. Right. And he kind of um, made a point of bowing to them all and sitting not on the dais, but on the ground with them and uh, making sure that the, and the, 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 you know, real short summary of the Kalama Sutra is basically him saying, like, don't take anything for granted that anyone says um, that uh, you know, even if they're a so-called Buddha, um, that uh, that you have to, first of all, use your rational, your rationality is a part of your, your gift of being human, right? And second of all, then he defined um, what that truth has to meet uh, two, two criteria. It has to be in concordance with the teachings of the wise, and it has to be in concordance with your own experience as well. So, which is kind of scientific, like saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. saying you have to do actual re like experimentation, whether that, those be thought experiments or actual like uh, research. But um, but yeah, I think I think so. I think it's 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 it is important though to to recognize that that if you sit around super defensive and skeptical. Um, so two, two things. First of all, on a very subtle level, what I what I just said, I want to repeat because it's important. On a very subtle level, you're demonstrating not a, a a skepticism in in the what's being said, but actually you're you're doubting your your own abilities to to. You're saying yeah, basically, yeah. I'm susceptible no. to brainwashing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then second, the second thing is which is more important is that that attitude, and this is experiential, so I, I don't know this just from, um, I don't know this just from reading it, mm. though it is, in, it is in the teachings of the wise. I know this from actually both sides. I know this from uh, being a student, and I also know it from being a teacher, which is a very real truth, which is that that attitude of skepticism frustrates your ability to listen, right? It honestly does. It's like a, a cotton in your ears or something. It muffles sound. It muffles you're, you're the ability to receive. You're attacking everything that they say in your mind. Right. You, you never get to take the whole whole and... Right. And as a result, you miss things. Yeah, you, yeah exactly. Because you, you get you hung up on, if I make five points and you, do, you completely disagree yeah, exactly. with number two, you might not even hear three and four. Because exactly. your mind has like frozen there, like a CD that's yeah, now skipping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you see? And yeah. I know that because of I know that because of personal experience being a student and doing that and realizing, wait a minute, taking that defensive skeptical attitude in that class that I just took frustrated my own ability to learn. Like, and then now as a teacher, of course, going around teaching students, I see that in other students and, and, it, and I see the effects of it and how it slows them down and frustrates their ability to learn and grow. And so, um, that's actually, yeah. Well, two things I was going to say, well, that is sort of taught to be like as a scientist, you doubt, you're constantly doubting what other people's like, Oh, trying to find holes in other people's logic or their thought that like you're putting their Yeah. It's like putting their ideas on trial. And when you're listening to a talk, you're often doing that, but that's not always conducive to like good results in the end. Um, right. And what I'm saying is not necessarily don't do that, oh, no, no, it, but maybe do it later. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, no, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, that's a good. That's a very good point. Because even if yeah. you even if you want to put my my arguments, so called arguments, on trial, you can't give. It's not a fair trial if you don't fully listen to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Wait, no. Wait, I, I was gonna, the other thing I was going to say is it, it, it's interesting it, it, using an example when I've listened to you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, no offense by this, but sometimes sure. there's some science things which if if I was to sit there and think, I'd be like, oh. You can't say that, yeah. like, because I know. But then I know that you're using that as a device to make a point. Right. And and I and I know in like I think possibly the first time I heard you, I might have been like, oh. But then I was like, wait a second, no, that's not that's not the point. That's not the actual message. You shouldn't get hung up on some side issue uh. when the actual important point underneath is what's important. Like there's a there's a meaning behind that that is more important, and that's just a way of transmitting that information. Sure. Yeah. So, 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 you're, so you're saying that you did notice in yourself uh, yeah, that it I know, frustrated I know, your yeah, ability to yeah. listen. Yeah, I noticed it myself, so I changed it. What about the first point, though? Uh, do you want to comment on that? No, the, the first point? Remind me again? Well, that the stance of skepticism, in a sense, also betrays that you don't trust yourself. I, I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree with that. I would say that from experience. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, in, in, like, if I was to think, I, uh, admittedly, I hadn't thought about it like that before. 
but that, that's, 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 she yeah, I, I agree with it, it, it like yeah. from my was, as you were saying it i was thinking back on times when i've been like that uh. and i was thinking yeah, i think that is often where it comes from that's its origin yeah like you mistrust yourself yeah exactly that's, that's what it is because you think you're going to get duped right and and, and it, but you and that's implying that you think you can be the, yeah, the, yeah you're, no. you're dupable yeah, yeah, yeah right but but then at the same time <laughs> that is in saying that that's also something as scientists we sort of know we we can be duped because yeah, we're, we can, we're constantly trying to break down intuition that we sure i can, I can be i can so, be tricked and, and yeah. sold a lie but i'm not brainwashable yeah yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's, you're it, not going to convince me to like go out and live a life that is unhealthy for me yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, no, because it, it's just actually, but then it, this is... It, this you might is, sell me a false product or, or like, you know, convince me of some, like you might right now make up some some physics theory and convince <laughs> me of its truth and then like it actually isn't true. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I discover that a, a year or two later or whatever, but like you're not going to get me to change the way I live. Yeah. Well, to it, some to something that's unhealthy for me. Exactly. No, right? this, you don't have that power over me. This is actually an interesting... It's a, it's a similarity between the two again, because in the same way that you say that, if someone dupes me in physics, their theory isn't going to last long if it's wrong. Right, like, exactly. Because it, eventually, someone else will look at it. it maybe you'll stick around for a couple of years or something, but that, it won't last because once it doesn't stand up to the tests or whether that be the data or in the case of Zen cases, your own experience, mm. it falters. And, and yeah, yeah, like I, I, I just, I trust in myself enough to go to a teacher and like sit for a class, an hour long class, and maybe it's on something um, very different practice than my own. Like maybe let's just say hypothetically Sufism or something. And I can just sit in that hour and be fully receptive. And as a result, I walk away, you know, also over time, as you learn to get into that receptive state and not be competitive and like, you know, this has come from decades of being in the East and, yeah, yeah. and just take everything as an invitation to explore. So everything is a question instead of a stance, let go of your defenses, be very receptive. I kind of find that almost, it's almost like a digestive system. It's almost natural in the sense that at the end of that lecture on Sufism, what I walk away with is the parts that are like useful for me yeah. and the parts that I kind of inherently are not, or that I would disagree with. They, it's almost like I don't need to expend energy anymore to knock them down mm -hmm. because they don't stick. They don't like, they're not like at the end, what I remember about the hour basically is just the things that were like, Oh, like that, that story he told is really cool. It like reminds me of this, or it taught me this, or it like, you know, and same when I go to a tea teacher from another lineage, for example. Mm, yeah. So, because there's a lot of tea lineages. Yeah, some yeah. people don't know that, you know, and there are, and sometimes I visit other teachers that are important to me but they're not like my teacher. And so they're not going to, um, it's highly unlikely that they're not going to, that they're going to like change the way that I make tea because they probably have different, you know, like, you know, tea is an aimless practice, but for lack of a better word, they have a different aim. They're trying to create something different than what I'm trying to create. And so um, it's, it's unlikely, but if I, if I go in there with that kind of really protective attitude, then I might miss out on, you know, some learning some things from them. A good example is like there sometimes are teachers who are, um, you know, my approach to tea is obviously more spiritual and more like meditative and ceremonial. And there are teachers whose experience in tea might be incredibly vast, 30, 40 years worth of experience, but it's all like commercial. They are tea merchants, mm. right? And yet like every time I hang out with those dudes, I learn a ton about the history of tea, about the way that, like, just all kinds of stuff I learned. And it's because I don't, like, go in there with judgment. I go in there with, with humility. I go in there with respect. I go in there honoring what they had, like, their experience and their approach. And then I walk away. And, you know, certainly at first, like I said, there was, a, there was years where I had to get used to doing this. But as of now, it's almost like I don't have to go home later and pick everything they set apart and find the parts that are for me because it kind of happens naturally in the sense that like whatever what's left afterwards is just the parts that were for me and the rest and even sometimes the things i don't agree with if you treat them as avenues of of inquiry then you're just like well why don't i agree with that and, hmm. going and, and you might yeah. find out some like blind spot of yourself you might like by treating it instead of just completely outright rejecting it start asking yourself, well, why do I reject it? Like, you know, like you were saying earlier, when you heard me speak, you saw, you heard something that you disagreed with, right? 
you know, what I would invite you to do if that ever happens in the future, or if any of our listeners on the podcast are listening to me in this podcast or in any future podcast, and they hear something I say and they disagree with it, if it's a, if it's a, if it's, if it's a, just like a factoid that you disagree with, like I say the population of Iceland is 12 <laughs> and you know, it's actually one point something million or 2 million, whatever it is, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, it is then that, that's just a mistake. Yeah. I've made a mistake and I make them all the time. That's different than what I'm talking about. Yeah. But if, if, if there is something that you disagree with and, and it does linger, right? It, the, 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 the thing that you disagree with does linger, then play with it. Like, why do I disagree with it? Why is it causing that discomfort? What is it about that? that it, da, 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 and is there some truth in it? Is it, is it the way that it was said? Is it, did it like, and you can like, and you just treat it like an avenue of exploration and I mean, you that's, might learn that's something. That's how I ended up treating it you know, in, in a way. And, and because of that experience mm. of seeing how me treating it like that, I would gain from it. Mm. I now have been trying to approach things in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. 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 But, but I think that, that I found that it's a very deep lesson to the, the first point that I made is that I did find that, um, in that process of making the transition of of regarding teachings as as questions, as invitations, avenues of exploration, areas, fields, countries, whatever you want to say, instead of philosophical stances about the nature of reality, um, because I, I you know I studied some Western philosophy. It wasn't I, I started out getting my degree in Western philosophy and switched to a, a Asian philosophy like uh, two years into college. So I'm I, you know and and uh, yeah so I, I'm you know have read quite a bit of western philosophy so that but that transition you know as i was making that transition is 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 when i i had this deep insight that i just shared with with all of you which is that like you know kind of stopping and being like wait a minute i trust myself mm. right and so i don't have to be on guard all the time right i'm i i have a i have a strong intellect and i have a strong intuition and um you know i i'm capable of discerning what's for me and what isn't and um and so I can spend the time that I have with some teacher that I respect listening instead of judging or, you know, and then I found that I, that, that that's just a much more productive use of that, of that time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Let's move on with more questions. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> we talked a lot about how Zen and science overlap and how there's a lot of similarities, but they also diverge a little bit. Um, what do you like about Zen that is maybe not congruent with science. Well, okay. So how, how I came to Zen type thing, and this is seeing all of you here, being here, how I came to be here, um, was I'd already, like, so prior to knowing Gobal Tiad existed, ever having read anything about Zen, ever having done anything spiritual in any extent, I'd sort of explored some of the ideas that you guys discuss or the meditative mind, those sort of things through my own actual tea practice. I actually started my having my own tea practice prior to even knowing that you, the global tea heart, tea sage heart existed. And so a lot of those things came, I, I learned through experience of myself and my mind and how, and how I was, how mind mind was developing, how it respond to things, how different my my how my mood it changes certain things about how I interact with the world, all those sort of things, and how my biases play out. How and and, and I was actively attempting to break some of those things down myself. Um, and then it was only it, it was once I'd already been on that for about I'd been doing that for about a year a year and a half that I discovered that global tea had existed, and it was sort of like, oh, there's other people that do this, but in a in a in a more structured way, in a deeper way, and so it it's hard it's hard to say that it, it dis like yeah whether it dis it disagrees with his scientific view, but in any case, I sort of a lot of those things came from experience, and so I would say there's sort of a room like a, a rudimentary form of science in the sense that you. you I, I take an action and I see what happens. I take an action, see what happens. And I, and I formed a view and a way of seeing the world and personal growth. And, and I could see how these changes in my life were affecting me. And then it was sort of like, I saw that those were consistent with some of the teachings of Zen. 
And so, although it isn't strictly a scientific point of view, it, it's it's it felt like truth. Well, it was just I, I was practicing like some form of like meditation, and 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 having meditate, I would have silence for say. 20 minutes before a silent sitting for 20 minutes before I would have tea and I would and I would I would treat my life in that way like I would be like I would I would how I would then approach the tea I do certain rituals and things well rituals is a big word but I do I do various things during that process that I, w- I would then be like oh, these are reminders for how I should act in real life or these are how I should approach other things and things like that um this is this isn't a very concrete example, but I hope that gets the point across somewhat. I'm not. I'm not I'd have to. But you like sit down the, and. Are you saying you like? I haven't really the, discussed this with anyone before, so that's, <laughs> that's understandable. It's not something something I. Yes. I, I like. See, it's sort of hard sometimes because you know a lot of these things you have in your head and they're, they're within the context of your mind, and then when you, you try to express them to someone, you it, it sometimes doesn't feel exactly like what I'm trying to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, know, you know what I mean. Yeah. You mentioned reminders. Is that something mm. that you liked about it? Like the, um, you know, having a ceremony and, and that reminding you that what's important in yeah, life? Yeah, like I was saying, just like I was just saying before, when, you, when I was look, looking at, well, I was thinking about religions and things and, and what a lot of what the, the parallels you see between them is the creation of rituals and reminders. And what that's trying to do is reinforce thought mm. processes, reinforce ways of living, reinforce ways of approaching life. And I found that that, was conducive to personal improvement, personal view, how I would view the world, and I and I was sort of seeing it in the way that as I improve myself, myself, I can be better for the people around me. It's sort of that kind of thing, and I just saw that I saw those effects mm-hmm. in my life, and that was yeah. So yeah, I, I see them. Yeah, I felt that was important. Those reminders, I found them important. Um, and even now, I, yeah, this, well, obviously even now, but if, it, now, I, I, if I see myself. And I, but I've always been I've always been someone that typically reflects quite a bit on my my thought process, my actions. I'm also someone that lives a lot in my head, so um, I, I'm often reflecting on things, and I can see when, and I've become increasingly more attuned to it. But I can see when I'm not adhering to the things that I, or if thinking the way I feel is how I should be, and I can feel that, and then I'm like, that means I need to remind myself. So to speak, it, it, it's funny. Like one of the, well, one of the things, for example, is like you you said a few times the if if you think you don't have time for meditation, you should meditate. That means you need to meditate more. <laughs> and so it's like that kind of thing. And it's like it, like that's like actually recently I was like I felt like I can't, was constantly feeling like that. So then I was uh, this was only a week it, a week and a half ago, and I, I just said, okay, I'm having a whole day. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just drop everything, and it would just be a day of. Reflection, meditation, and tea. Mm. Very skillful, Nearberry. <laughs> the the too much to do and not enough time to do it mind is a very low vibration mind. And actually, it's also an incredibly inefficient mind. Incredibly. Which is, I, yeah, which no, is I, funny because yeah. the what's instigating that state is a feeling like there's too much to do and yeah, not no, enough time. Yeah. And yet, it, it in itself is very inefficient. So, um, you know, a lot of people, when they come to this, to the center if they hang around for any amount of time are very surprised at um how much i get done and they're also surprised at <laughs> how many breaks i take too. <laughs> uh, and that's because you know anytime that mind arises um i i immediately stop whatever i'm doing and make sure that that mind goes away before i get back to work you know and because if i sit and think of like all the that i have to get done over the next like five months even mm. it'll drive me insane and yeah, i won't yeah. be able to do anything yeah, I, I, I see this. I see that mindset regularly, sometimes. And I, every time I see, it, I'm like, no, this you can't. This is this is not conducive to a good work ethic. Work ethic. Yeah. It it always leads to inefficiency. Yes. Always leads to you not meeting deadlines or, or, or not producing work that you're proud of. Yeah, or mistakes that or you mistakes, have to go. Yeah, you have to go. Yeah. Re, uh, you know, fix. Imagine, imagine <laughs> you're doing this and you're doing maths, and yeah, you, and you exactly. just you, you you're too caught up. In the stress, yes. Or of in my trying world, to get it's, it done, in my world, you it's forget broken, a minus sign. It's broken T world. It's broken yeah, T yeah. in my oh, world. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. No, I, I don't. I almost never break. T, I've almost never broken T wear, but I've broken like one piece, oh. and it was because of that. And it's just like yeah. it's a teaching moment. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm. Mm. 
Hmm, so I have a question, um, and this is sort of for both of you. Uh, would the two of you agree or disagree that so Buddhism or Zen specifically provokes us to ask the biggest questions about ourselves or maybe even like the nature of things as they are, and then particle physics specifically <laughs> um, sort of asks the biggest question about the universe, the biggest questions about the universe. Um, would you two agree that these are sort of the same questions organized in a different way? Yeah, I think it's the same question, but um, but uh, just a different uh, uh, line of inquiry or a different approach to finding the answers. Um, where you know, whereas the physics is um, using uh, um, a language of mathematics uh, primarily and um, focusing on outward observations, um, often with the help of technology. Um, and then translating those observations into into mathematical language that can hopefully then be verified by others elsewhere. Um, Zen is an inward uh, journey, and um, and is uh, uses the language. Of, it has its own language, um, but its language is um, a little bit more open in the sense that it could be poetry. It could it's often tea, martial arts, calligraphy. You know. And it also can be verified, though outside. I mean, this is one of the roles of the of the teacher is to verify the um, the insight, to you know, to kind of make sure that it's that it's like a you know, it's not like a it's not like a a, a test or something, and then oh, you've passed. But like to just to, to help you acknowledge that yes that that like you're 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 onto something you know, what you're experiencing is something that has been experienced before and that um it, you can maybe unpack it in this way or that way and so i just think the the avenues of exploration are different but um but again though zen is more inwardly focused doesn't mean it's exclusively inward uh, inwardly focused and i think just because Science is more outwardly focused. Doesn't mean it's exclusively outwardly focused. Um, so I think they, you know, yeah, some nuance there. But. Yeah, and and certainly any, um, you know, any uh, truth that is shown to be um, that is evidenced and proven to be the functionings or workings of the universe must absolutely be immediately adopted into not only into zen but into the the into the worldview of any rational sane human being <laughs> right yeah, so right. <laughs> like it's more fundamental than zen it's like zen is practiced by human beings and if you're a human being and and something is demonstrated conclusively then it's demonstrated conclusively you know and that's that that's that is what it is and zen's not at odds with that like i can i can I can adapt my view, <clears throat> um, but yeah. So I don't. I don't think. I don't think they, they're either, either way. And I. And I think you know he. he something actually. Uh, I don't know if you, I've ever told you this, but my teacher used to use a, um, use physics in one of his teachings. Oh really? No, I yeah. Didn't know that. He. Uh, so my teacher's teacher um, was very. My teacher got into Zen because of his teacher. Um, you know, he was he was raised with a very devout grandmother, and like a lot of Western people, he kind of grew up being dragged to the temple like all the time, and developed a little bit of a distaste for the like dogma of Buddhism. In the same way that some of us might have, you know, had that upbringing when it comes to Christianity or something like that, and um, then his teacher came to his high school and spoke so like directly and and so like down to earth and in such in a language that he resonated with like that he was like wow like this Zen stuff actually had something to do with my life mm -hmm. and he started then going to the temple because his teacher didn't show up and start saying like the seven this is and the eight this is and start like just reciting old scriptures he spoke in a way that was that was relatable for those for those young people and they were like wow and he or at least my teacher felt like wow this is actually meaningful to me in my life right now and so he started get, taking interest um, and so um, <clears throat> this our particular lineage 
has this kind of um, generational focus on an ability to um, to like convey Zen directly. Um, my teacher talked about it a lot. He used to call it like street street talk Zen. That was like his <laughs> his like broken English yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. version of it. But anyway, the analogy that he used was he always used the analogy that a physicist who can't uh, explain their research to a lay person doesn't yet understand all the implications of their research. That's definitely true <laughs> from experience. Yes. Right. So what he when yeah, right. his his yeah. analogy was was to Zen. What he was saying yeah, was that yeah. someone who someone who can't articulate their Zen yeah, that's right, yeah. without resorting to like Buddhist scriptures and Buddhist language and jargon doesn't yet fully understand all the implications that that those teachings have on mm. their own life. When you're forced to like quote. You, and you can't just say it in your own words, basically. Or, yeah, that's right. right. So, so I think that even if he does do some, some research in it, and the research is is more typically articulated in a very um, complicated mathematical formula, if he can't also express that to me in lay in lay terms without me having to go refresh my calculus, which would probably take a few months <laughs> before I'd get to a place where I could even you know have that discussion. Um, if he can't do that, then maybe he doesn't understand all the implications of what he's what he's researching. That's right. Like the the main problem with like communication of scientific ideas is just building up a jargon and things. And it's because you spend well, I spent like nine years staring at these things, and you build up sort of understanding and baggage of different terms and things. But if I don't fully understand those things, I can't, I couldn't explain them to you because they're not. It's not that they're complicated ideas. It's just that there's a lot of stuff behind it like a lot of background meaning that we all like all scientists sort of agree on the meaning of those terms and what that means but i should be able to sit there and pack away pack unpack what those words mean and be able to if i come up to a theory you know come with a theory to you i should be able to explain it to you for right sure. and and so there the, why this relates to your question um this is why this is important for your question is because i feel like if i can't um express my zen in a way that a christian would agree uh, i don't fully understand zen and if i can't express my zen in a way that a scientist wouldn't fully agree then um then i don't fully understand zen or or i'm making mistakes mm -hmm. which you know maybe it was i don't know if that's earlier on you were mentioning in one some of my early lectures you listened to that i was making maybe i was making a mistake but a mistake is a whole other thing and i do make mistakes but but it, let's set mistakes aside i should be able to express zen in a way that at the end of the day neil barry like mm -hmm. is like, able to say yes i resonate mm -hmm. with that and if i can't do that um, then I don't fully understand Zen. Just as he should be able to express his science, he should be able to demonstrate the science to me in a way that makes me, um, you know, that I'd have to be crazy to say that's not yeah, the yeah. reality of the way things actually are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right? I agree. You, you should be able to show, yeah. if it's true, yeah, no, that's then right. you should be able to show it, me. It should be possible to show you. Otherwise, yeah, I should be able to, yeah. you know, I should be able to understand it and maybe not understand it as deeply as, as the one who's able to use to, to read that, uh, that those mathematical formulas. But at least I should be able to understand the implications that it has on, um, on the world in which I live or on my life and, and, um, the same, you know, the other way around. Yeah, I shouldn't, I stuff. shouldn't have to, I, I shouldn't have, you know, I should be able to walk into, like my teacher's teacher, walked into a high school and was able to reach high school students. Um, and so, like, if your Zen has become living wisdom and you're living it and it's something that benefits human beings, then, you know, f drop the dogma. Who cares about the dogma and the, and the, and the nonsense? Like, if, it's, if, there's, if there's meaningful truth that, that can help human beings to live more skillfully, then, you know then you know we we can express that in a way that everyone will be able to resonate with you know and <clears throat> i feel to an extent i have achieved that in my life mostly through the gift of tea tea has um instilled zen in me in a way that i don't feel the need to wear my monastic robes everywhere i go and i don't travel around i travel in the world around the world and talk about tea i don't travel around the world in zen robes and talk about <laughs> buddhism <laughs> There's a reason for that. Because if I travel around the world and talk about Buddhism in my monastic robes, a lot less people will listen. 
because they'll have preconceived ideas or they'll do that thing where they sit and disagree with what I'm yeah, saying and then yeah. that'll frustrate mm-hmm. their ability to listen. Yeah, but now, you know, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me after events all the time. It just happened in Holland and in Estonia. People come up, coming up to me after events and saying, you know, those things you said, I feel like I've always known that. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you because I already knew what you said. You just kind of put a language to it. And now I can, in my own mind, I can articulate things that I already know. And um, I think that's a sign that that I'm that my Zen is working, basically, you know. So uh, that's the answer to your question: is that there can only be there can only be disagreement if both of us cling to something, and then um, and become entrenched in it, um, you know. But you, you, one of my favorite enlightenment stories actually is is related to this. One of my favorite enlightenment stories is um, this: a great Zen master who he was rowing his boat across the river and he bumped into another boat and and cursed like you know watch where you're going you stupid idiot and then he looked up and the other boat was empty and immediately he was awakened because he realized nobody argues with an empty boat <laughs> right this is one of the i mean again uh, koans are are meant to go to the irrational space so they're not they don't really have a meaning, but one of the teachings in the, the very classic one is like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? <clears throat> I'm sure everybody's heard that. One of the many ways of unpacking that um, is to say that like it requires two hands to clap. So in order for Neil Barry and I to make a noise, uh, both of us have to resist. But I'm not in a state of resistance. I'm not a personally opposed to any science that he can demonstrate. The, you know, so any anything that he can demonstrate to me as a truth, the, I am obligated because I'm sane <laughs> to to acknowledge. Yeah. Like I don't. There's no. There's no disagreeing with 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 the fact, uh, and so if it's if it's demonstrable, and if it's not demonstrable, then his fact isn't as sound as he thought it was. You know, and good for him. He should you know go back and, back and, and you should yeah. go back and and do some more research and make sure that it that it like uh responds to all criticism that it's that there is it you know but um i i'm not in a state of resistance to anything that him or any of his coterie have to say i'm um, in fact every single book that i've read on physics which again i'm, I'm not I'm not, I don't have any kind of degree, so I don't have anywhere near the amount of study that this brother has. But I, you know, I've, I do have a, a lifelong love for astronomy and, and astrophysics in particular, um, more as a like light hobby and as a, just a general desire to understand the universe in which I live. Um, so I have read quite a bit and I always, um, you know, every every time I I read I read even as a kid reading Carl Sagan's Cosmos, or more recently I was talking to Neil Barry. I've I read the uh, some Neil deGrasse Tyson books, and I'm always left with the feeling that there are incredibly powerful, moving, personal, and spiritual implications in these. Um, you know, in these books that are just, hey, this is what we understand about the, about the universe in layman's terms, and I'm blown away by it. I don't, so I don't need to create a, um, I don't have a stance on this is the way the world is, and if your science talks says otherwise, then you and I are, are f- fundamentally disagree. I don't have that uh, perspective. I'm more my perspective is like, you know, what we don't know is infinitely more vast than what we do know. And um, every little bit that we can know just adds more to what we know and, and um, incites inspiration and, and exploration and personal and spiritual um, implications in a lot of it. Like it's, you know, it's the, the, the just even little things, the, the fact that uh, the starlight often traveled billions or hundreds of billions of years through space to to reach our eyes, and that it's you know what we're looking at is memory. Like I find that incredibly powerful. 
Yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. It's yes. profound. It's, like, yeah, it's, it's very yeah, profound, it's and very it's meaningful profound. to me personally, and it's meaningful also to me spiritually, personally to me, and it has spiritual implications. So I'd rather have my spirituality be based and rooted in reality and truth than um, in dogma, basically, you know, because the, the 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 world changes and as it changes and our understanding of it changes also. And so, you know, you have to grow with, with that. So I don't think there can be any disagreement from at all from my side because I don't, I'm not resistant. And even if he disagrees with something I say, again, then my perspective, my, there would still also not be a possibility of disagreement because even if Neil says, well, I disagreed with what you said last week, you said X, Y, Z, my perspective would be, well, near Barry, either one of two things, throw that out and go home and <laughs> use the parts that you did agree with, right? Like, I don't care. No sweat off of my back. Like, you know, take what is good for you and leave the rest. And second, I would say if you're still charged, like we were discussed earlier, if you're still charged about that thing weeks later, I think it's, you know, you need to contemplate a little bit more because, uh, you know, if you're, if you spot it, you got it. And so there's probably something there that if, because you shouldn't, you know, a scientist shouldn't feel emotional yeah, that's right. about a, a, an, a falsity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's no, like, there's nothing, like, there's nothing, if you tell me the world's <laughs> flat, there are people that say that, but yeah, like, yeah. I don't have any emotion other than, no, that's wrong. Right. It's not. And, Yet, you know, if, you, if you're going to think that, then you're going to think that. There's not anything I can really do about it. But it's not like the world is not flat. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> and there's no need. Like, Sorry I don't. The truth. To also, the other thing is that the truth doesn't need anyone to defend it. It defends itself right. because it's real. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, its realness is its defense, and and so it, it, you know it doesn't need us to to defend it. I, I feel. So I, from my perspective, there can't be any disagreement. Anything you would like to add? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I agreed with almost everything you said. Well, pretty much everything. I can't think of anything in particular that I disagreed with. So. Well, and if you do, then you need yeah, to no, think. Why not? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Which is a much more just healthy approach. Like, oh, I disagree with that. Why? No, yeah. I, and why does it matter to me? And if you're emotionally charged, then there's a, you know... There's certainly something there. There's some kind of tension in you or like you're, you know, the, the, oftentimes the medicine that we need is a little bit bitter and we, we don't like to hear it, you know. And so oftentimes I know in my case, when I disagree with something, um, it's often, not always, but it's, it's often because, you know, when, and especially when it's not a fact like the world's flat or round, but like just something like some kind of, you know, sp to do with personal cultivation, Usually, if usually if I'm resistant to it, it's because it's my medicine. Um, I found even as a teacher, um, to be honest, I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have any kind of like data to back this up. This is just experiential, but I've found that a pretty common thing is, and this is it's almost like you could say a coincidence, or you could say weird. Or supernatural, like it—it it happens enough that you're like, hmm, and you scratch your head, which is this phenomenon that, like, oftentimes when uh, a teaching comes up naturally, that is very important to a particular student, they happen to not be there. Hmm. And I'm talking about it coming up naturally, not intentionally. So, like, as a teacher, like, maybe I know something that you personally need to work on, Neil Barry, because yeah. we always see other people more clearly than we see ourselves. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> you, you know this is an issue, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, let's just take an obvious example, something ethical. Let's say you got a friend who's, you know, always, uh, you know, dishonest. Mm -hmm. And so th then, you know, it's not an intentional, like, today I'm going to talk about honesty and the importance of honesty so that George can hear it because he's got a problem with honesty. But just like noticing that whenever the topic of, of, you know, in Buddhism, this would be like noble speech, 
you know, yeah, 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 that would be a, par a part of noble yeah, speech. Yeah, yeah. That whenever the topic of noble speech comes up, George happens to be in the bathroom <laughs> or like he's the one cooking lunch. And so he wasn't there for that lesson or like he like tunes it out or like he mm -hmm. like this kind of thing happens so much that you're like you, you begin to realize like how much of that am I doing? <laughs> and then you start like, you know, I, I guess like, you know, for me, what I've made a real strong effort to do over the last, you know, 15, 20 years is kind of install software in my brain that. Like um, anytime I start defending against some kind of spiritual principle, red flags go off and I stop and I like walk away and I, and I, and I poke at that more and start, and start being like, well, why? And you know, why was that? Well, why did I feel about that that way? And, you know, because usually if it's not something you have to work on personally, it'll just like pass right by you and there'll be no charge. So if you're emotionally charged, if you're emotionally uh, reactive to a particular something it's probably because th there's some something there yeah, in yeah. you so you know you know my i used to w w even have the i used to work with the affirmation almost every day of like what am i defending i was just thinking you're going to say that because i remember you did a discourse yeah I, 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 I talk i used to do, yeah, do that yeah, almost yeah. every day like what am i defending what am i defending and i had asked myself that a lot like anytime i would defend something mm whether it was something intellectual or some philosophy or, um, you know, getting into an argument or defending myself, right? And what I found from my experience, and others might differ, but what I found is that 100% um, of the time I was always defending the worst parts of myself. I was always defending my ego, in other words, like the parts I don't want to identify with. So I was always defending the very thing that is in the way of me becoming the person that I want to be. And so then I realized that the the act of defending itself was in the way of me being the person that I wanted to be. And so I made started making a practice of like of of not um, defending myself, mm -hmm. especially against criticism, because criticism is like it's so you know it's so helpful. And now I'm I'm incredibly skilled to the point that I can um, at this stage I can even like I can if you even if you throw a lot of your ego at me like you you just you know start throwing all of your stuff at me and then you leave i i'm now to the point where i can take what you've said and like t let you know that pile of gook and i can take it over to the sink and like wash it off and see if there's any like gems hidden in that muck and then like um, and maybe there's not. Maybe it was all just your you could junk. Learn something from it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's all your junk. Yeah. But maybe there's something in there. Like actually, aside from all the like anger and junk and your stuff that you were trying to project onto me, there actually was a kernel of something that was for me. So, um, and that's you know, so even if the criticism ha is coded in insult or ego, sometimes if you can like just wash all that gunk off. And forget about that. You don't need any of that stuff. But inside of it, there might be, hey, you know what? I, I do have a... And so this is the, you know, in Buddhism, we say it, the um, endless blind passions. I vow to uproot them all. Hmm. So we all have all these like infinite blind spots that we don't see in ourselves. And you begin to realize that anything that helps you to see those blind spots is an ally. So, um, you know, pokes are good. And so, Yeah. So before we close, um, I'd like to share this kind of cool and interesting quote that I came across about particle physicists specifically that has sort of a sort of a Zen flavor to it. People trained in particle physics develop a unique way of thinking. They know how to approach the unknowns, how to solve problems, how to design their own equipment, and never give up. Does that sound true, Milberry? <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I, I couldn't put it better myself. Zen too. That's too. Yeah. I mean, that's very zen. Uh, so. The ability to like design your own experiments and and uh, pay attention to the results, uh, even if the results are um, con con contradict what you thought about yourself or about reality or about the way that you think who you think you are, that you're open to to receive that and. Um, so there's a lot of Zen in that, I think. Mm. 
Thank you so much, Ure, and thank you so much, Neil Barry, for coming over. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Yes, it was <laughs> a pleasure listening um, to this discussion. Um, I hope all the listeners liked it too. And um, we will see you in the next episode of Life of Tea. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please help us reach more people by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Your comments, likes, and shares will go a long way and are deeply appreciated. If you would like another way to support this project in our free tea center here in Miali, Taiwan, please sign up for our ad-free magazine that we publish every month. It covers all aspects of tea, from processing and brewing techniques, history, lore, spirituality, and community. It also comes with a tin of beautiful, sustainably produced tea. To subscribe, go to globalteahut.org. If you would like more information on linear topics such as brewing techniques, please feel free to check out our YouTube channel, also called Global Tea Hut.